men, we have to have the conversations about Mennonites also. We have to have the conversations about different types of Anabaptists. Right, because everybody just assumes when you see a head covering that or a plain looking person, they're Amish. Right. Yeah. So he was like, he didn't know what Mennonites were, but he knew what Amish were. <laughs> oh my. morning everybody so we are gathered here today on our second meeting of the sacred subjects book club just so y'all if you haven't been watching this is what the booklets come in it's a set of booklets that are published by pathway publishers it's an unknown author who is an amish minister as described by Pathway Publishers. We are currently discussing this booklet, which says, I wish I could have confided in my parents. And we started discussing it last week, but there's so much to discuss. We decided we needed to discuss it again this week to finish talking about some of the content. I am joined by Lori Stoltzfus, who is a licensed professional counselor coming from a plain and liberal Mennonite background, and by Stephanie Craybill, who's the director of Into Account. Would you all like to say good, uh, good morning? Good morning. Good morning. Yay. So how's everybody doing? Hi, Lena. Mm. How y'all doing? I'm getting over a cold. So if I Ugh. have terrible hacking, uh, sorry. I'm really fine. It's just working yeah. course. <laughs> good morning. Well, I hope you feel better soon. So good morning, everybody. Well, today's episode, I think we left off kind of talking about like, you know, the roles within marriage. So there was another role that was also described in this book um, within marriage on page, um, oh boy, 16, 17. It says, the third reason God has ordained sex within marriage is to build the bond of love and attraction between a man and wife. I, I think we talked, did we talk about that? I, I think like we talked a little bit about that. Okay. And how like it all goes into the harlot mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Do y'all yeah. have any notes for the book after that page? Because I have notes all over, like they're all like in my I'm busy notebook, compliments of somebody. Compliments of yourself? <laughs> no, actually, that this notebook was a gift from somebody. The notebook itself, I got you. Yeah. But I have notes. I, I, hey, I'm, Billy. I'm just looking forward to your notes. Hi, Billy. Oh, well. <laughs> The, the next thing that I kind of want to point out is on page, like, 21, like, there's a lot of things there, and we can't cover it word for word, everything. But there's this thing, seeking a better way, okay? And the author writes, I don't know who first thought up that phrase, the facts of life. By it, we usually mean knowledge about where babies come from and how they are conceived 
and how boys and girls are physically different from each other. But regardless of who first used the phrase, I do not like the use of it. You will not find it often in this book. To me, that phrase symbolizes where the world has failed in their great sex education experiment. Can anybody tell me what the great sex education experiment was? Well, I think between the discussion that we had last week and some of the knowledge that various folks filled in in the comments, we're to assume that this was first written in the 70s, which I guess means maybe the great sex experiment is referring to the um, sexual liberation movements of the 60s and 70s. But it seems to also have some sort of evergreen quality because they're still using it. So I'm kind of assuming that the world is in a perpetual great sex experiment and this literature is perpetually resisting that. Um, that's my best stab, Lori. <laughs> it seems like maybe the author kind of made it up. Or that. <laughs> Lovely. Um, and I didn't have it. I should have researched it a little, like, seen if I could find anything on the on the internet that wasn't created by the Amish. Oh, education. Oh, should have been clear. Yeah, they they're talking about sex education in schools and the idea that anybody but parents should be teaching children about sex. Right. Well, yeah. I I go ahead, Lori. Well, I was just going to say it was like wildly um, uh, sensational the way that um, the author portrayed it um, by saying basically like extremely um, out there concepts of like um, using, observing people actually having sex as a means of sex education, which is inaccurate. Yeah. And uh, as used as a means of fear mongering, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, we got all the animals because Freya's been in here this morning just like pacing. It's this, it's great. This is I mean pacing time, so I I don't think Freya likes this description of the great sex education experiment being sensationalized and used as a fear mongering tactic. I, I don't I don't think she likes that. I don't think this I don't think this one likes it either. No, <laughs> a cat's butthole to offer to that. <laughs> Man, we're really going there. <laughs> I mean, we we what? No, no, no. inappropriate. Inappropriate. That was okay. a that was an in, in here thought. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, the author does also say that it is important how we teach our kids. It is important. The most important thing is to understand how clearly how important it is the attitude we teach our children to have about sex. Okay. I mean, it is important. Sure. Yeah. yeah like, like, that is important. But then he goes on to say that it is of utmost importance that we come to see sex in its rightful place as something beautiful and holy created by God for our benefit. How do you feel about that? 
I'm sorry, I'm distracted by the cat's head butting her. Inej, you're really you're you're starting to. I mean, the star of the show has obviously arrived. <laughs> obviously. This is this is the real star. In case y'all didn't know. So okay, um, I but I would shut her out, but then you would just hear an expression. Wow. <laughs> I'll control myself. <laughs> she's just really cute. I mean, she's really cute, and she's, she's really loving. Yeah. And she just like loves you. And she's like, "Oh, you're in distress. Let me let me help you out. Oh, I got you." Probably both of your pets can sense your anxiety. Oh, they definitely can. But I'm not really anxious right now. Right now, I think she just wants to be a pain in the butt. <laughs> I'm not anxious either. Rather, I'm, I'm really grateful that I got to have this conversation and kind of talk about it. Um, to me, I guess I think that if people believe that sex is created by God, like, that's that's their beliefs but I don't necessarily have to ascribe to that and you know people find various different ways to believe about it it's, but it's, it's just kind of bizarre to me that like that that idea is coexisting with so much victim blaming for sexual violence that is built into the, you know, that is also built into this curriculum. Like, yeah. That's hard to reconcile the two uh, messaging. Yeah. yeah. I find it really confusing. I did also skip a page, so I do want to read this one because it's kind of like indicative of like things. Um, so, we must learn and we must teach, this is on page 20, and we must teach our children that it is important to keep themselves pure and to flee useful lusts, but not the desire itself, not the appetite is wrong, but the misuse of it. And in some ways, okay, fine. But the author continues on, if I walk into a grocery store and start to eat an apple, it is wrong, so wrong that I could be punished by law for taking what is not mine. But once I have passed the checkout and paid for that apple, it is mine. I am free to eat it, even enjoy it. My desire to eat that apple before it was mine was lust. My desire to eat it after it is rightfully mine is good and right, a sign of health and the means of keeping me healthy. So are you applying that principle to marriage? Okay, we just, we just, we just fell right into uh, people's property. I was just, yeah, I felt, I felt that. Do you do you view AFAB people as property? I don't. But is that what the author is saying? That's what I heard. Yes. It's like once you have bought the apple, you can do whatever you want to it. That is the message. And the woman is the apple. I, <laughs> mm -hmm. And I guess you could also say, oh, the man is the apple. Like you're, you both, you're, you both have proprietary claims over each other. Like I know this book sometimes equivocates that, but like, for one thing, we know that's not how it happens in practice. We know in practice, like the, you know, doctrines of male headship very much mean that like women and children are the property. Yeah. 
but also um, it even if it like there's no equitable way for that to manifest because it is premised on the idea that you can lay claim to another human being. I'm an apple. I'm an apple, y'all. I mean, I'm the apple of your eye. Where do we begin with the like, <laughs> etymology of the like? <laughs> I'm an apple. Yeah. I am an apple. I'm gonna start saying this, y'all. I'm an apple. A rosy red apple, but I'm an apple. A new realization about. Oh, look, Kitty's back. Kitty's like, oh, no, I can't do this whole apple analogy because, like, it just, no, this is not cool. Kitty's like, um, sorry, I'm the apple here. Like, admire me. Yes. But importantly, this apple does not tolerate, like, entitlement. <laughs> like, if you try when she's not, like, wanting to be picked up, she will scratch your face off. I love that kind of apple. Oh, this sounds entirely too relatable. Let's, uh, yeah. Feel free to scratch the faces off of people who feel entitled to your apple. I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, personally, I would do that. <laughs> I mean, I might do a little bit more, but I mean, you know, if you if you feel like you own my my body and that entitles you to touch me touch me at your own risk mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'd invite you to touch me at your own risk i'm just saying you know you just if you want to test the waters <laughs> you've been so helpful Anish. <laughs> so one of our listeners said apple kind of rhymes with asshole i mean We've, we've had all of it already in the first five minutes. Apples, assholes. It, it is, you know, assholes. time for more coffee. Speaking of assholes. <laughs> okay, seriously, can you just sit? sit? This, this cat just needs to be the apple of your eye, Stephanie. Well, she is. Okay. Also, okay. Can you jump up there? He's like, that's your play area. <laughs> And then, you know, there's like this whole, you know, how we speak in like parables, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you look at like page 22, so how open should sex be, writes the author. Okay, then we understand that sex is not dirty. It is not shameful. It is not wrong. But if it is so good and holy, then why should we not talk about it openly to everyone we meet? Because it is too sacred to treat so casually as we do common things like eating and sleeping. We treat a sex in a special way, not because it's dirty, but because it's sacred. And then there's a parable story given of like a teenage son who was rebellious and he lost control of his temper and he shouted bitter, angry words at his father, said he was going to leave and go stay, go to the neighbors in town to stay. He said they had often invited him to come if he couldn't make it at home any longer. And he said that he was tired of living with hypocrites and that even the worldly people were nicer to him than his own parents. But the insults and blame were more than Andrew's father could take, he shouted back, a 
accusing this child of being an unruly and selfish and ungrateful son. And the son shot back that he would not come home until the father, father apologized to him. And the father shot back with equal force that neither would the son be welcome until he apologized for the way he had talked. And that evening, the father went to bed, but he could not sleep. He kept remembering those angry, blaming words he had spoken to his erring son. It had been steel against steel, his own will against his son's will. He did not feel good about it. He had been prodded into losing his temper. His son had accused him of being a hypocrite, and now he felt very much like one indeed. But Andrew was having, Andrew is the son, was having a hard time going to sleep too. He could only think of the bitter insults he had yelled at his father. Deep inside his heart, he knew it wasn't true that, his, that the neighbors loved him more than his parents. And finally, he could stand it no longer. He started out for home to apologize to his father. At about the same time, his father swung his feet out of bed, dressed, and started down the road to go to town to find Andrew and apologize for the thing he said. The two met about halfway between home and town. How thankful they both were for the privacy that darkness gave them as they met there at the side of the lonely country road, both sobbing in remorse, both asking to be forgiven. They talked for more than an hour and then they both returned home. It was an experience that was painful and humiliating but one which both father and son cherished and remembered and treasured as long as they lived. It was the beginning of a bond and a relationship between them that was priceless. What all did you notice in there? How you like that? Victim blaming? What part was victim blaming? His dad. He said his his son prodded him to anger. So he is essentially blaming his dad for his anger. I mean, his son. Okay. Um. Can I ask about this? Uh, where the father, like talks about like it had been steel against steel his own will against his son's will what about that part there's so much going on here <laughs> I, I mean go go ahead i don't know i mean i feel like again like this sounds like a heartbreaking scenario that probably happens a lot um or at least the initial confrontation that there's no recognition there's no recognition of the father's power this steel okay steel against steel fine he's using a weaponry metaphor and you know his his son goaded him you know that victim blaming language like laurie said and but it's like I, I, my interest is in the original things that the son said, you know, that you're hypocrites that like, it's, it's funny that the, the stated rebellion was pretty specific. Like this hypothetical scenario had some really specific accusations from the son to the father. The people, the worldly people were nicer to him than his own parents. Yeah. 
Oh, but he knew deep in his heart that his parents loved him more than that. That's the follow-up. That's the truth voice of authority follow-up. And it's like, okay. Okay. But he's a child, again, you know, like he's a teenager, he's verging on adulthood, but he's a kid and he's talking to his father. So who has the power and authority in this situation? Obviously the parent. Okay. So when the son accuses the father, what does it sound like to you? I mean, I don't know. Lori, I I defer to you on that. I I have some ideas, but you're a therapist. (laughs) No, go ahead, because I don't. I mean, mean it sounds like some like it sounds like someone who's being worst case scenario someone who's being abused best case scenario a kid who is really not feeling heard and feels like like there're no more options left in their family and saying the worldly people are nicer to me like like what so so Drawing on my own experience, um, I'm not going to lie. I probably actually did tell my parents that the worldly people were nicer to me than they were. But that was also a case where I was being abused. Yeah. And the other thing is, is like they labeled this child as rebellious. What have they labeled me as? They labeled this child as angry when they finally speak up. What did they label me as? What do people still label me as? And what are the stories that they use to get their youth back under their control and their thumb so that there's no um, long-lasting consequences for those actions? This is a manipulative story because the author goes on to talk about, no, they don't talk about this to anyone they meet. It is too precious, too deeply personal. So is this story, okay, I'm still having some trouble making connections between the, we don't talk about sex because it's so precious and sacred, and this story. Like, are they trying to make a connection? Yeah, this is a connection. It's like, okay, this story is as personal as sex is. And. They had a reconciliation based on sobbing and apology. And that's true repentance viewed right there. Or trauma bonding. Or. Oh, geez. Sounds like a twisted use of the so-called parable of the prodigal son. Well. Bringing that in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would be inclined to kind of agree with that. But it's like this thing, like part of this story, what's what's interesting is I've experienced being the child on that side. Mm-hmm. In the same token, I've experienced being the parent that the child comes to and says, hey, I got this thing. And the thing is, is if you are responding with anger to your child, that is a you choice. I promise you that is a you choice. That is not your child invoking you to anger. Mm -hmm. That is you choosing to respond with anger. And when your child trusts you enough to um, 
openly say something about something that you are doing that bothers them. They are showing that you have taught them and you have invoked a sense of safety in your child enough. Or in the case of abused children, sometimes they um, are just, they're done. They have, it has to come out some way. So either your child's going to come to you with the things that, that are bothering them in a way that you have modeled them, or they're going to come to you and explode when something happens if they've experienced so much trauma. Or if they've bottled it up, it can just come out. But it is a thing when a child tells you something about yourself, hear them. As a parent, it is your responsibility to hear them. And if you're responding with anger, again, that is on you as a parent promise but yes for that in in this type of mindset because if you're a child you're at the bottom of the of the of the total like you you don't get to that's anytime you say something to even when you ask a question sometimes um i know that that happened to me a lot growing up i just ask questions because i was a question asker and um, I would get the response because I said so. Like that told me like I wasn't even allowed to ask questions. Yeah. Because it's you know, there it's a it's questioning authority, and we don't do that. So that child had no. As soon as he started saying that, he was already going to get in trouble. He yeah. was already going to be yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. But, there also seems to be a, a really like what happens in the family stays in the family vibe, here, which like, you know, like it seems like this is the conclusion of this is being put forward as a victory because the reconciliation happened in private. It wasn't witnessed by any worldly people. It wasn't overheard by any neighbors. Like it happened. It it went well because this this teenager did not go and trust another adult ultimately like that would have i guess that would have been the worst outcome if, if the teenager had gone to the worldly people and told them what was going on right and, oh oh yeah yeah which yeah and it, it's just like it strikes me it's like that's such a common like based on everything that you know i've read and that barry has taught me um and that i've heard from other amish people that like this is the like you do not tell you don't tell the truth to outsiders. You don't expose like sex is if 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 sex is a broad umbrella that includes sexual violence, which clearly is the case in the ethos of of this series, then talking about sexual violence is the same betrayal of the community, of the family, of the church. Um as as this kid like threatened to commit by going to the worldly people is that am i am i reading it right yeah yeah no this kid like threatened like it threatened everything it threatened everything and the whole keep it in the family thing yeah you know i think isn't it true that mafia families have that whole mentality of keeping it in the family too it's it's a it's a standard like 
linchpin of coercive control. Yeah. Like it, it happens amongst other cultures too, to have that kind of mentality and that kind of mindset. But I think it is very much present here is that, oh, we had this explosive outburst. There was verbal and a verbal altercation for sure that we know of. And, you know, we don't talk about that publicly. We don't, we don't, that's, that's private. Even, you know, some of us have like somebody that we can confide to in a friend or feeling remorse, but yet like we treasure it too much to speak lightly of it. Like we don't. And and they come like this is like, okay, so we are we also supposed to draw the conclusion that we treasure sex too much to speak of it lightly, but that also means that we treasure sex too much to speak about sexual violence lightly. And who would ever speak of sexual violence lightly in the first place? What kind of person would do that? A perpetrator. Yeah. Also, like, what the idea of like this is so sacred that you must <laughs> you must be willing to do it even when you don't want to do it. <laughs> like it it is making sexual violence like the, the the amount the way they've they've set the stage for this is like you no longer have ownership over your body when you get married and like whether you want to or not you owe your spouse regular sex and the the idea and then like the the property metaphors with the apple like you, you bring all that in and then it's like oh and by the way this is so sacred we don't talk about it with anyone else and like well it also just creates shame because if something isn't talked about it's and then it does develop it does create shame in the people that have thoughts or questions or any curiosity about it, then, well, I must be, it must be bad. So it's mixed messaging at its best. Yeah. It's really confusing to, to try to put it all together, isn't it? Yeah. I just want to say like to people who have read it, like if you felt confused by this and felt like there was something wrong with you for being confused and were shamed for being confused, like, like, this You're, is confusing. There's nothing wrong with you. These are mixed messages. It's very mixed. And, you know, like, so, so, like, it kind of, like, goes into this next part is, like, who should teach it? Mm -hmm. Let me read a quote on page 25. Man cannot improve on God's plan. And it is God's plan that this subject should be taught to children by their parents. Okay, now where is that in the Bible? I haven't seen it. I mean, any thoughts? Because I can't find it in the Bible. I can't even find it in the, the, the one that I brought from, you know, that I have, my, my Amish one. I can't find it there either. So it's not in the Bible? No. I, I just would like to know because Wait, people. Oh, sorry. Are we saying that leaders arbitrarily decided that? Is that and then told their congregants that that's fact? 
and name the booklets the sacred subjects because being sacred means it's ordained from God. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really saying that, but that is kind of what it looks like, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It yeah. looks like an apple. It looks like I'm the apple, y'all. We can't make everything an apple. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I, you know, I'm but just then, continually flummoxed by these things. But then it goes on to say, if anyone else does it, it's only second best. <laughs> Again, where is that in the Bible? Where is that in the Bible? I really want, if you know what Bible verse that refers to, please send me an email. I want to know or comment it on this video. I want to know where that is in the Bible. If, okay, so, sorry. If anyone but the parents teaches the kid about sex, it's only second best. That's yes. what it's saying? Yes. Yep. It's literally saying that in black and white. Okay. Got it. And then, are you ready for this one? Yeah. Do you need your kitty cat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I might want to think about it. She's happy on the couch now, and that one is worthless. Like, let's just do it. <laughs> no one's real here. That's okay. A whole for Sunday, so we all got it. <laughs> that is why this book is written to parents and not to children. But you're expecting parents to use this book to teach their children about sex. And Am I am I misunderstanding that message? It's a black and white. I mean, like again, like it's literally what it says. It's it's a little circular. It's a little circular logic. Can you explain what circular logic is? Um it's okay. If you say I, my belief system is superior to all other belief systems. How do I know this? Because the scriptures of my belief system tell me that it is superior to all other belief systems. Therefore, my belief system is superior to all other belief systems. That is uh, circular logic. Thank you. So that what it means is that there's no looking outward for for uh, evidence to support the claim. It is this claim is true because this claim is true. So here it's like, I mean, probably I'm going to belabor this a little bit, but okay. So parents, you are supposed to teach your kids about sex. You are the only ones who can teach your kids about sex. But um, your kids, like, we're here to, <laughs> sorry. It made sense in my head. It's not making sense coming out. Can somebody help me fill this? Like, I feel like this is circular logic. Okay. So, wow. like, <laughs> dizzy when you're trying to understand it. It's probably circular logic. So, so they're saying, they're stating exactly this 
man cannot improve upon God's plans. They say that their reliefs are based upon the Bible, but nobody knows where this Bible verse is that supposedly supports the idea that only parents can teach sex education to their kids. Right. Right. There is no evidence that I have. And if there is evidence that supports that in the Bible, I would really like to see that. God, it's God says it's true because I said that God says it's true. Mm-hmm. Does God speak to him and only him? I mean, this is in cult analysis. This is what we call we call thought terminating cliches. Yep. You can't argue with them because they're Mm -hmm. Mm self-justifying. So thank you for that. But moving on to the next note that I have, it is on page 26. And it talks about bedroom and happiness in marriage. I can't wait. (laughs) We're going to learn so much, aren't we? If the husband sees his wife as a sexual object for him to use and take advantage of, it will take a lot of words to convince his children that sex is clean and beautiful. Bedroom unhappiness in marriage spills out into all of our lives and can affect us throughout the day in ways that children will absorb. I have so many questions. Well, floor is yours. How will the children know? Like, what? That seems, that's really sketch. I mean, I don't know. What about you, Stephanie? Well, I'm still caught up on, okay, on the one hand, your wife is an apple that you buy in the store and you can do whatever you want to the apple after you bought it. But on the other hand, if you're objectifying your wife, then I guess it will it will be make it difficult for you to teach your children that you shouldn't objectify people that you're having sex with. You're kidding me, right? But then don't forget that like if you are the apple, you uh you need to be available to be bitten whenever. <laughs> And you can't talk about it to anybody outside of the family. And by the way, it is always second best for people who aren't parents to teach their children about sex. Always. That also fits immaculately into whatever the hell this is. Not. I mean. I mean, on one hand, I even have to say this because I'm just like, okay, but this part, like the part where you talk about like, you know, um, I think what this author might have been trying to get to is the fact that the behavior we model teaches our kids more than the words we say. If you think about it, you can say one thing, but your actions, what you model to your kids matters. Right. Okay. And so maybe the author's trying to get at that, but it doesn't really make sense to anybody outside of like that type of environment. In the same token, that is directly conflicting the apple of the eye. Like, so how do you reconcile that? 
I think the only way you reconcile it is if you've been groomed with the thought terminating cliches so that the logical inconsistencies in this, if they occur to you, you assume that you need to feel ashamed for noticing them. That's the, that's the, the cult grooming that makes you be like, oh, this doesn't make sense, but clearly it makes sense to everybody around me. So there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. And maybe I should just pray harder. Yeah. Pray harder. Whatever. Yeah. Because the author also mentions like, you know, for the husband and wife to get along with each other doesn't mean making a big public display of it. Only in private do we teach appropriate, um, except if, if like you never display and model appropriate physical touch. And I'm not talking about going and having sex in front of your kids. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is modeling consensual, appropriate, age-appropriate physical touch for your kids. Right. And doesn't, don't they talk about, doesn't he talk somewhere in the book about not showing any public affection? So how are kids even supposed to see that? Like, I think it is healthy for kids to see parents being affectionate toward each other. Uh, yeah, he says it right here. He says, um, you know, if our love is genuine, we do not need to prove it in public by a big display of physical affection. So there was a mentality that I lived with while I was inside of the community. And that was that anybody that displays public affection is not really genuine love. Literally. It doesn't even make sense. But that's the mentality behind that. That's that's what I believed at that point because that's what I was taught to believe. It makes sense too, like even just growing up, even though my I even though we weren't Amish, like my dad grew up Amish. Well, they he grew up Mennonite, but his parents grew up Amish, so these things were passed down to him. And he's still really a little awkward with physical affection. Oh, now you understand your dad a little bit better. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Well, and I, I want to go right back to like the whole, um, the the whole um, if like parents like is there an idea here in this type of language that parents should just get along at all costs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, how I want to know like where does con does healthy conflict enter into this? Because it seems like, like it, I'm remembering, Mary, something that you said last week about how the hardest thing for you as a parent wasn't teaching your kid about sex, it was teaching your kid about interpersonal relationships. And this seems to, like, when you're getting this kind of information about, okay, how do you handle conflict within a family? How do you handle the boundaries around your body? Um, how do you handle what's public and what's private? And it's just, there are all these contradicting rules and all this shame. It's no wonder that so many people coming out of plain communities say that they have trouble with interpersonal relationships. Because from my perspective, you're getting so many mixed messages as children about what's appropriate and what's not, and what looks, and what love is and what love isn't. Yeah, and I mean, even furthermore, on the next page, on page 27, we go into talking about, um, this is not a marriage manual, but it has become the trend for many modern marriage counselors to blame all marital discord on an unhappy sex life together. I will vouch for that. 
facts. Some many marriage counselors do do that. Yeah. Um, if husband and wife quarrel about which neighbor to invite for dinner, if they disagree about how much money to spend or how to discipline the children, they trace it all back to an unhappy sexual relationship. Although such modern counselors take it to a ridiculous extreme, there are, is no doubt that when couples are unable to find a well-adjusted sex life, it can and does spill over into the rest of their relationship. The reverse is also true, of course. If they cannot agree on other problems, it can affect their sex life together. Um, although we plain people feel rather good about the fact that we don't permit divorce, there are far too many painfully unhappy marriages among us. And a lot of couples do lack a proper understanding of each other. Many wives endure sex considering it as a, as a necessary burden they have to put up with. They may subconsciously despise their husband for being oversexed. This part made my stomach churn. This is so, oh my God, how do you start to untangle like what's actually like a thread of wisdom in this? And the husband cer certainly has his part to do to understand his wife and to demonstrate that, it, that his love for her goes beyond his physical urges. Many women have a much more subdued sexual urge. They find... Here we go. Sorry. Sorry. I love when happening. I do too. It's great. This is part of why this book club is so great. I have I have the Mennonite filter sometimes. <laughs> Mine is really rusty, that Mennonite filter. My Amish filter is super rusty. 99.9% .9 of the time. I just don't know where I fucking left it. No, but if y'all see it, please let me know. You set it on fire, Mary. That's why you can't find it. <laughs> I think I might have burnt it. Yeah, I, I, I really think I did. Good call. Okay, so but don't worry. Don't okay. worry. Since women have a more subdued sex urge, they find meaningful and understanding hand on the shoulders, a gentle pat, a kind word, or an embrace or a thoughtful kiss. They may be much more interested in talking or discussing the day's happenings when bedtime comes. Husbands must remember that if they love their wives, they will not only think of what would make themselves happy, but also what would make their wives happy. The measure of our love is not how eager we are to get into bed, but how willing we are to get out of bed in the middle of the night to help care for the baby that resulted from our love together. Okay, but earlier, what did we hear about? Buying apples. But we're still buying apples when we get married. So how are, how are you supposed to pull this off? This Oh, by the way, she's actually... Oh, but also, but also, not only the apples, but also to have a healthy relationship, you have to start with a healthy sex sexual relationship because that's going to create a healthy bond. Remember that part? Yeah. How many people actually wrote this? Was this written by a committee that was arguing with each other? Because that's a possibility. <laughs> that would make a lot of sense. It, it only says that an Amish minister wrote this. We don't know who. I, I'm, I'm kind of doubting the credibility of the accounting of the creation of these wonderful pieces of literature. Plot twist. It was several ministers feuding with one another and... The, the, the majority voted that it all gets sucked in the book and now here we are trying to untangle it. It's from God! Oh, oh, but don't worry. On the next page, 
My parents were diligent in teaching us to dress in the order of the church, to be reverent in worship and not be too loud or laugh too much. But why the silence on the subject of purity and thought and actions? Are, are the Amish silent on the subject of purity? I mean, further, thank God I was spared the experience of some of my prettier, more popular friends who lost their virginity at a young age. And my question is, were those friends essayed as children? <coughs> right, because they, in some one of these books somewhere, it does talk about that, right? Yep. What? Yep. A two girl of 11, I think it is. But then... We're now supposed to stop discouraging children from talking to their parents about questions and problems. And I would actually agree with that sentence. Say it again. The first step is to stop discouraging children from talking to parents about problems and questions. Well, like Stephanie said, there is some, there are some nuggets of wisdom in, you know. In, right. I can't argue with against all of it for sure. There's, there's, but it's just so conflicting though. I think because we, we heard the parable, like the, the, the prodigal son parable that earlier, that story. And now we're supposed to actively encourage the second step is to actively encourage such questions. That and and that doesn't play out very well in most Mennonite or Amish, or at least Mennonite homes. Um, like, and it depends on the home. It really does. Like, that's just really it. Like, but I do think that when you encourage your children to be open and honest with you and you provide a safe space for them, you are encouraging them to actually ask questions and not ask answering questions with because I said so is critical. Also, unequivocally, if you want to have this kind of relationship with your children, you cannot use corporal punishment you cannot spank them you cannot beat them you cannot try to break their will if you want to have frank conversations with them you can't do that we know that that leads to children not confiding in their parents because they fear physical consequences physical abuse which is also like rampant in these communities is part of why children aren't talking to their parents well, then the author even, like, this is part of what baffles me. The author even says, every time you shame your child for having asked a question, you break down a bridge over which he might have passed at some future time to come to confide in you. Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. And every time you accept his question willingly, every time you do your best to give an answer that is honest and fair, you build a bridge that will help make it easier in the future, like to confide in you later on. Like, y'all, like, this is true. That's good parenting advice. Mm -hmm. And it's just really, really frustrating that it's that it's in this toxic mix. I feel like that's the most dangerous thing is people are never going to be able to throw this out because they're like, oh, but like, this seems good. It's like, yeah, but a lot of it, when you just read it at a surface level, um, it does that. You're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you, until you start to put all the pieces together and critically think about it is when you see more and more things that don't add up. Yeah. 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 
and again, like some of this is not bad, but it's like when you have some good advice mixed in with really dangerous advice, what happens is that like it it causes this conflict within you and you don't know what is correct and what is the accurate way to do it. And so if you see your neighbors doing this or you see your family doing this or your parents did this, you're more than likely going to repeat what your parents did if that is mixed in with the good advice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing they talk about is parents with wrong attitudes. We've already discussed this. It is sufficient here to, that it may take a long time to change our trend of thinking. Husbands and wives should discuss this openly with each other. They should discuss why, what factors, and why you look at sex as unclean, and discuss ways of overcoming this, and pray earnestly for help to cleanse in your thinking so that you can see this as one of God's gifts. Then they even talk about parents feeling unsure awkward and this book is written to make such communication easier (laughs) no i just feel so bad for people who earnestly want to get information and then like are like why i don't there must be something wrong with me that i don't understand this why doesn't it add up for me maybe i'll read it another I got a I got another one for you. Two of the booklets, so when parents feel unsure and awkward, two of the booklets in this set have been written so that a child of 11 or 12 can read it for him or herself. Great. Let that sink in. Um, and they do feel that it is most ideal if parents read these simply as a model or suggestion of how they might explain things. Okay. And we know what's in those other booklets. Yeah. And doing that will help create a bond between you and your child. I don't see how uh, an 11-year-old reading to a girl of 11 would increase the bond between her and her parents. I mean, I am not going to comment on that right now because it feels like it would be way too much. Yeah. But y'all have fun. <laughs> so for viewers, we really encourage you to read Mary's book, uh, Memories and Reflections of an Amish Misfit, because she does talk about that in there, about reading, about being given that book. And then the next thing is where we talk about parents fear knowledge will increase temptations and there's a whole parable there but regardless it ends with you are the parent you are making the choice for your child will you tell him when he needs to know in the right way and at the right time or will you leave it for others to tell him in ways or works that are shameful and why are we using the word shameful Well, remember, God has ordained it that, um, you know, um, parents are the only people that can teach their kids about sex. Anybody else is second best, so it should be shameful. Right? Am I, am I wrong? According to the book, you're right, yeah. So, also, if children are, no, I don't know. I don't even know. What did we just read? Y'all, this booklet, I wish I could have confided in my parents. 
Do y'all have any um, clothing thoughts on that booklet? Um, I think it's an example of what not to do. What about you, Stephanie? I, I think it's an artifact of a really, really traumatized group of people. That's one way you could look at it. That's good. And that's like, I mean, that's a little bit, that's the, the academic in me speaking. Like I can't pretend to know what it's like to grow up, like having this be my only information about sex, but I see trauma all over this. Like the, just in the way, the conflicting ways that, that these, this author slash authors, we don't know are talking about shame lets me know like the people who wrote this are people who are carrying community and generational trauma. And they're, you know, I don't know what their motivations are, but they have created a document that simultaneously reflects a lot of trauma while furthering all the mechanisms of coercive control that are allowing, uh, allowing a lot of abuse and manipulation within the communities that they're ostensibly serving. Which is really quite frankly awful. So if, like you don't have any other clothing thoughts um i'm going to talk about our next booklet for a second it's going to be ignorance is bliss if you're following along and you know i i want to say that a summary of like my thoughts is like this i feel like there's this overlying problem with the booklet itself because not only is everything conflicting and indicative of a traumatized generation, as Stephanie mentioned, it's, it's this thing that parents are given and they trust these people to be telling them good information. And they look at it as like the sacred subject. So it was ordained by God. This is something that was given to them by God. And so when this is all that they are really provided and in conjunction with at times, Amish parents have also been provided with to train up a child. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, but that book is a horrible book. And when you combine these two ideas and the ideologies and the theologies together, it is a perfect environment for child abuse to be rampant literally and it is a perfect environment to tell parents they are doing the right thing by abusing their children when you look at parent-child conflict as being a a war a a weapon like you you use these analogies of like, it's my will against my child's will. You are pitting parents and children against each other. Mm -hmm. Conflict in and of itself is not inherently unhealthy. Conflict can actually lead to change. It can lead to having open conversations. It can lead to, you know, doing things in a way that make more sense to your children. It can lead to your children having a better life. It can lead to you having a better life. So there is a way to have healthy conflict. And that I did not see demonstrated in this book. And I kind of think that's a shame too, in many ways. 
<sighs> well, I I have one other thing I just wanted to mention is like writing on what you said about conflict is I one of my mentors in graduate school said to me once, you know, because I, I was writing, trying to deal with like how to represent the fear of conflict that I was seeing in in, in this case in liberal Mennonite communities. And he said to me, you know, conflict is the context in which everything happens. Conflict is the context in which everything happens, just generally speaking. And I found that really helpful because, you know, obviously I, I was raised very conflict diverse, like many, many people in our culture are. And I don't mean our culture in a Baptist. I mean, our culture is the bigger culture. Yeah. In, in the United States and in Canada and like Euro-American, whatever. But when we, we don't actually get to opt out of conflict, we're surrounded by it all the time. There's no, like, I think that one of the things that Mennonites have done, that Anabaptists have done, like, regardless of the manifestation is think, okay, we can, we can create a sanctuary here where we don't have conflict and conflict is bad. And that has contributed to our, our interpersonal violence and trauma. We don't know how to navigate conflict. And when you don't know how to navigate conflict, you exponentially increase the likelihood that it's going to turn into violence. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's a big issue. And, and, you know, the way that we understand, like, our whole conversation about pacifism and violence and, you know, non-resistance and how that how to reconcile that with the incredible amount of interpersonal violence that happens in Anabaptist communities is is a big deal. It really is a big deal. And I think this is another portion, another piece of like the the factors at play that create that environment that are rife with child abuse. Yeah. And violence. So thank you for that. Well we are at our time. So I just want to say, like, if you listen today, thank you. If you, like, have thoughts, ideas, like, again, if this is triggering for you, please seek out resources to help you feel like you're in a safe space. I hope you are in a safe place. Like, if you're supporting us in any way, like our um, Patreon subscribers, thank you. We appreciate you. We couldn't do what we do without all of you, both our listeners and our Patreon supporters. And of course, thank you, Lori. Thank you, Stephanie. Like, I'm so glad we get to do this. And we'll come back in March with Ignorance is Bliss. Maybe Isn't it's it not Ignorance really. is not bliss? Ignorance is not bliss. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this is going to be great. Nope. I'm going to call it Ignorance is Bliss. My I, bad. Yeah, they actually believe that Ignorance is Bliss, so I think we should rename it. Here, I fixed it for you. I fixed it. Y'all have a great Sunday. Yeah.